friends, today is a very special day, perhaps the most special day of all the special days. Certainly, it's a day worthy of wearing Easter pants. I hope you have something similar. Approximately 40 days ago, at the beginning of the season of Lent, we buried the hallelujah. We haven't said it or sung it since before Ash Wednesday. At about that same time, we recognized that Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem, towards Gethsemane, towards Golgotha. He rode a donkey into that great city. He shared a meal with his disciples. He was anointed. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He silently endured an embarrassment of a trial and he was crucified. He died and he was buried. Just two days ago, on a day we call Good Friday, the whole earth shook and the whole world went dark. In this place, symbolically, we snuffed out the Christ candle. Yesterday, on Holy Saturday, we and all of heaven and all of earth, we held our breath and almost lost our hope. But today, friends, Today is different. Today is the beginning of something new. Today, there is Easter news to share for the tomb was found empty and the crucified one who died, he did not stay dead. And this is Easter news. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Again, he is risen. He is risen indeed. One more time like you mean it. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And because he is risen. Both sin and death have lost their sting. In Jesus' name, God has given us the victory. And so today, we celebrate that the light that shines in the darkness is, in fact, the everlasting light of God. His name is Jesus. And hallelujah, our whole world belongs to him.
sing together, Christ is risen. He is risen today.
Friends, who is this Jesus the Christ who we proclaim is risen from the dead? Who is he? In every book of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, throughout all our scriptures, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, every story whispers his name. In Genesis, Jesus Christ is the breath of life. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is a pillar of cloud by day and of fire at night. In Deuteronomy, he is a prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is the reigning king. In Ezra and Nehemiah, he rebuilds down every wall that has been broken down. In Esther, he is our advocate. In Job, our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In the Proverbs of Solomon, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is the meaning for our lives. In the Song of Solomon, he is the beloved bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is both the suffering servant and the king of all nations. In Jeremiah and the Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel's vision, he is the glorious Lord. And in Daniel, the fourth man in the midst of the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband. In Joel, he pours out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. In Amos, the burden bearer. In Obadiah, our judge and our savior. In Jonah, he is the great missionary of good news. In Micah, the ruler of the world from Bethlehem. In Nahum, he is our strength and our shield. In Habakkuk, he is the watchman. In Zephaniah, he is the Lord mighty to save. In Haggai, he is the restorer. In Zechariah, he is the branch of David, the one pierced for us. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. In the gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews and our teacher. In Mark, he is the servant and our Lord. In Luke, he is the Son of Man and our Savior. In John's Gospel, Jesus is the Son of God and our friend. In the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and our ascended King. In Romans, he is the righteousness of God. In 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he is the second Adam. In Galatians, he is the one who sets us free. In Ephesians, he is the head of this body, his church. In Philippians, he is our joy. In Colossians, he is the one in whom all things hold together. In 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he is our soon coming king. In 1st and 2nd Timothy, the mediator between the Father and humankind. In Titus, he is truth. In Philemon, he is our benefactor. In Hebrews, he is our perfection. In James, he is the power behind our faith. In 1st and in 2nd Peter, he is our chief shepherd and chief cornerstone. In the letters of John, he is our everlasting life. In Jude, he is the foundation of our faith. And in the Revelation, oh church, at this name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus the Christ is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Glory to God, our Father. Amen.
to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords, whose reign was ushered in that first Easter morning for this amazing good news, for amazing love that has been showed to this world and to each one of us individually, for love that sets us free and prompts us to love others. We say thank you, thank you, thank you, O Christ. And it's in your name we pray, amen. amen. My friends, the good news of Easter is that Christ is risen. He is risen Please share a sign of that uh, good news with uh, the folks sitting next to you as you are willing and able. Well, Easter greetings to everyone. It is so good to have everyone back from spring break. That's what we're here to celebrate, right? No. It is uh, great uh, to be gathered together here at Fellowship Church. My name is Nate Skipper, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are new or visiting with us, welcome. We are glad you're here. Sorry we ran out of room and we ran out of bulletins. Uh, please show us a little bit of grace. We should have some. If you don't have one, there might be some uh, after the service. We uh, are really, really uh, grateful uh, to be uh, worshiping together here as a faith community. One of the things I appreciate most about this faith community is the generosity uh, that is at the heart of who this people are, or who we are, ultimately. By giving of yourself and your stuff and your time and, and the gifts that God has given you, and we say thanks be to God, but we also give of our financial resources. And one of the reasons we do that is because God was so generously and graciously gave to us. This morning, uh, our collective offerings will be going uh, to, will go to our work in Turkey and Syria and the rebuilding efforts there through our denomination one of the cool things about this church is that on these Easter holidays, all cash offerings and designated gifts to the Easter offering go directly to that. We don't keep any of it. And one of the ways, uh, one of the cool things I heard just a couple weeks ago uh, was from one of our people on our little mission crew who was actually in Turkey just a couple weeks ago. They had a plan, they had that plan before the earthquakes. And she was there and she ran into someone that, uh, whose home had been destroyed and they were kind of conversing about the experience and she said, what was remarkable, this Turkish person through a translator, said what was remarkable is that our government didn't come first and neither did the people of our faith, which is a predominantly Muslim uh, country, but the Christians were the first ones here giving of themselves and giving of their resources. So this morning we are gonna join in that effort. If you would like to join with us, there are offering bowls at the back of the sanctuary and you can also give online. My friends, the children that are ages three through first grade, if they'd like to, they can go to their worship centers at this time. The rest of us will stand and continue in worship. This song is forever. 
may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this morning we are ever mindful of the gift that it is to gather together with friends and loved ones and to worship you, to sing to you, to pray to you, to greet one another in your name, and to study the scriptures. As we turn toward the scriptures this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see, open our ears that we might hear, open our hearts that we might love, and open our hands that we might reach out to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. And happy Easter. Uh, my name is Tiara. If I have not yet met you, one of the pastors here at Fellowship, and I am so excited to see your faces this morning. Uh, super excited to see your faces this morning. We are um, we are coming to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we have been in the Gospel of Matthew for several months now, since um, since the Advent season began uh, several months ago, and we've been looking at. Um, Jesus, not only as Lord, not only as Savior, not only as friend, but particularly in Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew presents Jesus to us as teacher. And so we've been looking at what the life of Jesus teaches us. We've been looking at what the teachings of Jesus teach us uh, in our own time. Uh, but as we moved into Lent, we began looking at what the, uh, what the, the works of Jesus, what the passion of teaches, uh, Jesus teaches us, uh, the suffering of Jesus, the unjust trial of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and this morning, this morning, the resurrection of Jesus. What specifically does the resurrection of Jesus teach his disciples in the first century? Uh, and even in our own time when our world still has and is marked by just as much abuse and hypocrisy and corruption and violence and bullying and cancer and poverty and depression as the first century. What does the resurrection of Jesus teach his disciples in the first century? And what does it say? What does it teach us today? Well, for that, we need to turn to the story of the first Easter morning. So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 28, picking up in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here, for he has risen, just as he said." Come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you, the angel said. And so Mary Magdalene and the other Mary departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them along the way and said to them, Hi. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they, there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our text begins with Mary Magdalene and the other Mary on their way to see the tomb where Jesus lay, which by the way, this is how you know this gospel was written by a guy who came to the tomb, Mary Magdalene and uh, uh, the other Mary, the other Mary. <laughs> details, details, people. <laughs> so Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. Now Mark, in Luke's account of Jesus's life um, and specifically of Jesus's resurrection, assigned the role, um, assigned Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the role of preparing Jesus's body for burial. Uh, traditionally, women would prepare the body of both men and women for burial. Sometimes guys would prepare the body, but they would specifically only prepare the bodies of men. Uh, but Matthew's gospel is different because Matthew just has them showing up to the tomb. No roles, no assignments, no spices, no duties. It's almost like Matthew is saying to us that these women are amongst Jesus's most faithful disciples. They followed Jesus. 
they bankrolled Jesus's ministry. They wept silently as Jesus was unjustly tried. They ugly cried as Jesus bled out on the cross before them. And when Jesus was placed in the tomb, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sat across from the tomb, stunned. And now, Matthew says, they've come to the tomb because the body of apparently their failed Messiah is in that tomb. But you get the sense that there's a lot more in the tomb for them. A lot more in the tomb. Maybe dreams, their possibilities, hopes. Their whole story is in the tomb. Not just as individuals, but as God's people, their story is in the tomb. The story of God choosing a barren couple named Abraham and Sarah to make them parents of a great nation. That story is in the tomb. Or the story of God's unique calling, God's unique purpose for that nation to be a conduit of blessing for the entire world is in that tomb. And when that blessing was threatened, the story of God's valiant rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt is in that tomb. And the story of God's gift of the Torah so that God's people could learn worship and justice and righteousness and wisdom and love is in that tomb. And the story of God's mission for them to be a light to the nations through their obedience to the Torah is in that tomb. And the story of God's gracious gift of a home and neighborhoods in the promised land is in that tomb. And the story of gathering around the hearth of the homes that they inhabited in the promised land to teach their children and their children's children about God's faithfulness to them is in that tomb. And the story of Passover meals celebrated with loved ones and neighbors and friends testifying to God's incredible, incredible faithfulness and rescue of them, even in the darkest of circumstances, is in that tomb. The story of God's presence with them filling the temple is in that tomb. But there's some not so good stories in that tomb as well. Like the story of God's people rejecting fellowship with their God is in that tomb. The story of turning to idols is in that tomb. The story of their injustice toward their brothers and sisters, particularly their poor brothers and sisters, is in that tomb. The story of them trusting in really, really bad political alliances rather than in the faithfulness of their God is in that tomb. The gut-wrenching story of God's presence leaving the temple is in that tomb. And the story of their eventual and inevitable exile is in that tomb. The story, though, a little flicker of hope, the story of God's promise, the story of God's promise to redeem them from exile and to restore their lives and their land and their purpose and all of creation along with it are in that tomb. And the story of Jesus proclaiming to be the fulfillment and the one who would fulfill all of those promises is in that tomb. What's in the tomb for God's people in the first century? God's purpose for them, God's place for them in the world, God's presence with them in the world, and God's promise to restore them, to redeem them from the shame of exile and the sin and the guilt that caused it. And all of it, all of it is as dead as the body of the Messiah who was supposed to restore it all. I think Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are all of us on Easter morning, all of us for whom there's a tomb full of dead things from our lives. What's in the tomb for you this morning? Perhaps family ties that used to be solid, but this morning are a little bit frayed and tense. Or maybe the friend group that swore they'd never stop calling, never stop visiting, never stop texting, but eventually did. Or perhaps the end of an era as friends and teammates all prepare to move to different places in a few short months. Or perhaps it's the physical body of a friend or a loved one or a spouse or a child. Perhaps even your own sense of purpose and meaning and calling in life. Perhaps a friendship that imploded out of nowhere or a relationship that you thought would be the one. Or perhaps a marriage that has breathed its last breath. Perhaps the possibility of ever being free of addiction. Perhaps the hopes of being accepted rather than bullied. Perhaps the dreams for a child that still hasn't been conceived. 
perhaps the promises that have gone unfulfilled over the course of your life, perhaps the person you were before the pile of mistakes and regrets, perhaps even the vibrant faith you, must, you once had. And in all of it, perhaps the corpse of the God that you thought would never abandon you, but seemingly did. What's in the tomb for you? Because 2,000 years ago, and even 2,000 years later today, Easter morning starts there. It starts in our tomb, each and every one of us. So this morning, we go with Mary Magdalene. We go with the other Mary to the tomb, waking up a few days after the crucifixion, going to see the tomb to mourn the things that have died, to figure out how to pick up the pieces, to figure out where else there is to go. And it's unclear if they know what they're getting themselves into traveling to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning because there are Roman soldiers stationed outside of the tomb, guarding the tomb. Why? Because the religious leaders who rejected Jesus, the chief priests and the Pharisees are convinced that someone might steal the body. How many of you want to steal bodies out of tombs? Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but notice how they describe Jesus uh, as an imposter. And notice how they describe Jesus' teaching as a lie. And notice how they describe the possibility of resurrection as a fraud. And notice how they describe even the story of the possibility of resurrection as a worse fraud than the initial fraud of teaching about it in the first place. So convinced are they that this is all one big lie, one big fraud, that they seal the tomb as if this is the end. And they place Roman soldiers at the tomb to guard it, to ensure that nothing comes into the tomb, not even remotely thinking that something or someone could come out of it. Now, these Roman soldiers are not mall security guards. No offense to you if you are a mall security guard. Uh, they are not mall security guards. Uh, they are like the 300 guys that King Leonidas brought with him to fight the Spartans, airbrushed abs and all. They are fierce, the most elite military of the ancient world to date, uh, mighty enough to submit every single conquered nation of the ancient world to the power of Rome Fierce enough to destroy every inkling of rebellion. That's how we get here. Fierce enough to destroy every inkling of rebellion um, in any and every one of those conquered nations. And lethal enough to destroy anyone, men, women, and children who would dare lead or join a rebellion. And then there's Mary Magdalene and the other Mary showing up at the tomb. And I'm going to guess that the other Mary was not, in fact, Wonder Woman. I'm going to guess that the other Mary and Mary Magdalene are just ordinary, average first century women. First century women who are outcast, who are despised, who are not taken very seriously, who were trivialized and weak, or at least assumed to be. And likely assuming that the tomb is as deserted as it was when they left it a couple of days ago. But as they're arriving to the tomb, an angel has descended, and these strong, mighty warriors with airbrushed abs literally tremble in their sandals. And Matthew says that they become like dead men, which is polite, diplomatic speak for they fainted. They fainted. And these frail, outcast women, these seemingly weak women, stare right into the eyes of an angel. Now, in all fairness, they're probably a little shell-shocked because they just saw the original cut of the Passion of the Christ. Uh, but uh, I think it has a little more to do, their resilience has a little more to do with what the angel says to them. What do angels always say to people when they encounter them? Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. When the angel comes to tell Zechariah, the priest, that he and his wife will conceive John the Baptist, what does the angel say to Zechariah? Don't be afraid. When an angel comes to tell Mary that she will give birth to the Messiah, what does he say? Do not be afraid. And when angels come to the shepherds one night to tell them where to find the Messiah, what do the angels say? Okay, fear not, but you get the point. Uh, <laughs> and when the angel comes to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, what does the angel say to them? Don't be afraid. And when the angel comes to Roman soldiers guarding the tomb of Jesus, what does he say? Nothing absolutely nothing. You get the picture of this intense stare down between the messenger of God and the most valiant soldiers of the ancient world who eventually quite literally collapse in fear from the intensity of the moment. It's almost like God is saying to the powers and the principalities of our world, 
to sin, death, and darkness, to everything and everyone who would guard the way and stifle the path to life and freedom and healing and hope in our world, you should be very afraid because your time is running out. What you might almost get the sense that what guards the tomb is actually more dangerous and and more deadly than the stuff that's inside of it. Sure, there's a lot of bad stuff in the tomb. There's dead things in the tomb. There's painful things in the tomb. But outside of the tomb are Roman soldiers who are quite committed to defrauding possibility and defrauding hope and making the resurrection and restoration possible out to be a lie. Just outside of the tomb is fear and cynicism and despair. What guards your tomb this morning? There's a step in the tomb And then there's the despair that traps us inside with the dead. One of my favorite thinkers, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, writes about hope. uh, But he also writes about despair. um, And he's very wise. You should listen to him because of that haircut. The wisdom just kind of downloads directly into his head. And and, uh, he says that despair is when we cease to hope in God And our share in the fact that God genuinely wants to and longs to, desires to share his goodness with us. Despair is the opposite of hope then. It's the cessation of hope. Hope has this way of orienting us toward God and God's character and God's promises. Uh, Hope has this way of orienting us toward union and connection with God. But without hope, once despair sets in, we just sort of give up on all of those things. There's been a lot of research in the last several years on despair and even some research on something called deaths of despair. Uh, It has just become such an epidemic even before the pandemic um, that U.S. life expectancy is actually trending downward for the first time um, for the first time in a very, very long time, which is shocking um, in a developed nation. We're literally six years behind um, comparable countries um, in the world. Uh, why? Uh, a lot of things, but part of that is attributed to deaths of despair, to drug and alcohol overdoses, to alcoholic liver disease, to, to suicide. Uh, now, it doesn't take a PhD in psychology to figure this out. When we give up hope, when despair sets in, we give up. And then we turn to things that help us cope with, the, with giving up. What guards your tomb this morning? Fear, cynicism, despair are quite literally worse worse than the things that are inside of the tomb. And here's why. Because when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary come to the tomb with their tear-streaked faces, they're greeted with good news from an angel of God who tells them that the Christ that they seek, you know, the one who was crucified in front of you just a few short days ago, he's not here. He's been risen from the dead just as he said he would. But don't take my word for it, the angel says. Don't take my word for it. Peek inside of the tomb and see that he's not there. And when they do, they realize that the angel's story is indeed true. This Messiah, their Messiah, has been raised to life. And Matthew says they are filled with this really strange, heart-pounding mix of fear and great joy. Fear and great joy as they depart to tell Jesus' core disciples the news. What does it mean for Mary Magdalene and the other Mary that Jesus, their Messiah, has been raised to life? And what does it mean for us in the 21st century that Christ has been risen? I think it means that everything, and I do mean everything in the tomb, will eventually come out. Everything will follow our Christ, who is the first fruits of the new creation, out of the tomb. But the resurrection teaches Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and us, even as we mourn, even as we remember the painful deaths of our own lives, even as we grapple with sin and brokenness in our world and in our lives and in our hearts, what the resurrection teaches us is that death and despair have been swallowed up in the victory of our Christ. Because our God would stop at nothing Nothing to redeem each and every one of us, to bring life from death and beauty from ashes and new life from the ruins of the old. This God restores purpose. This God rebuilds communities. This God repairs relationships. This God renovates dead, sin-filled, shame-burdened hearts. This God resurrects the dead. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God says that sin and brokenness and death and darkness and shame are not the last word about creation, not the last word about humanity, and not even the last word about me or you. 
It's true, what goes into the tomb nearly breaks us, shipwrecks us. It's true that what guards the tomb despairs us. But what comes out of the tomb quite literally redeems and restores us, which is nothing short of stunning. Because if we're honest, when some of us, like Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, peek into the tomb, we see a little bit of ourselves in there. And maybe the the lives or the people that we thought we would be. We see our own exile and alienation in there. We see our own lost hopes and dreams in there. We see our own colossal mistakes and failures that are too excruciating to recount. And we also stand outside of the tomb, crushed by despair and shame. But Jesus, the good news of this morning is that the Jesus who comes out of the tomb turns around and comes back to reach in for each and every one of us. And no one is beyond his reach. This is the Jesus that we trust in. This is the Jesus that we follow. This is the Jesus that we follow out of the tomb. But just as Christ emerged from the tomb and calls each of us out of the tomb, God's planned plan of redemption and restoration encompasses all of creation. This is our hope. This is what resurrection hope is, that God's restoration will eventually blanket all of creation. And just as Jesus sent Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to his core disciples to tell this good news, disciples who were likely cowering in fear and despair themselves after the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus sends us too as people, as messengers, as agents, as agents of this hope, which is not the easiest thing to do in a world that is dripped with cynicism and fear and despair. I was reading an article a few weeks ago, several articles about deaths of despair, and I stumbled across this little tidbit. Uh, Did you know that statistically, cities and communities of faith and with higher religious participation have fewer deaths of despair? Did you know that? Yeah. So apparently there's something about belonging to a community of faith that literally pushes back despair in people's lives and in communities. Now, what is it about communities of faith? Is it the people in communities of faith? You don't have to say anything, but the answer is probably not. Uh, <laughs> risky joke on Easter morning. <laughs> uh, is it, is it the, the, the lattes that we make, the perfectly crafted lattes that we make for people as they come into a service on a Sunday morning? Probably not. Is it perfectly crafted sermons that always end on time? Definitely not. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think that it is only and purely the hope that we have discovered in our God in and through Jesus Christ. I think it's what that Christ has done in each and every one of our lives. And I think the hope of what Christ will continue to do in our lives and the contagiousness of that hope that pushes back despair. Here's what I mean. Some of you know that I grew up in a predominantly black Pentecostal church where my dad was the pastor. You can unclench. I'm not going to make you speak in tongues. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I often joke that I walked very solemnly and expressionless into the Dutch Reformed Church. Uh, (laughs) I was not very charismatic as a kid or as an adult, but uh, we used to have these really, really long church services. I don't mean like you know, 75 minutes, I mean like three hours, like pack a lunch, pack a Gatorade, don't dehydrate, like really long church services. And part of the reason for that uh, was because there was this designated portion of the service where anyone in the worship gathering could come to a mic or have a mic brought to them by an elder or a deacon, uh, and they would offer a testimony. They tell this story of God's restoration and healing and hope in their lives to the entire worship gathering. And, um, These stories of God reversing impossible situations of of healing that defied medical possibility of conception after years of infertility, of dream spouses after years of singleness, joy and peace amidst excruciating pain and death, restoration after loss and abuse and trauma, recovery after years of addiction, and the palpable experience of God's grace changing them from the inside out. These people these ordinary saints who gathered together alongside me in pews, um, these ordinary saints who went before me, these ordinary saints who visited my family's home from time to time, told they stood outside the, the, the empty tombs in their lives and they told people the story. They alerted the rest of God's people to these incredible stories of God taking formerly dead things and calling them and causing them to stumble out of those tombs. 
As an adult Christian and as a preacher's kid, I've seen my fair share of stuff in the church. And I realized that the reason I never stopped believing wasn't because my own faith was so resilient and so incredibly strong. It was because of the faith and the hope of the people around me. It was their stories of a triune God of the scriptures who was good and faithful, even when God's people weren't of their own grace-soaked hearts and lives, of their own deeply personal stories of restoration that were so personal and so perfect that it couldn't be explained by, by some impersonal universe. Stories that I would cling to when my own hope was really frail and thin. As people in our world around us languish in despair, I think, I think they need something stronger than compassion. Compassion's amazing and it's good and it's right and it's a God-given character trait. But I think what people need, and I think what God is inviting us to, is to be agents of hope, to be people who truly grab a hold of the hope of the resurrection in their own lives. I mean, people who really believe this and stake their lives on it, people, people who have experienced and encountered the resurrected, the resurrected Christ in their own lives, and people who share the story of God raising things back to life and restoring dead places and dead things in their own hearts and lives people who testify with their words, their deeds, their lives, and their stories that in and through the risen Christ, love literally conquered sin and brokenness and faith conquered cynicism and hope conquered despair and life conquered death. And because of that, because of this Christ, because of this morning, nothing will be the same and nothing has to be. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for the love that shows us before the foundations of the world, for loving communion and fellowship with you and one another, for the Son who out of love and from love died to pour out your love on us, and for the Holy Spirit who pours your love into our hearts so that we might love you and one another and creation. Help us to be instruments of this love and hope in our world. Help us to point always toward the empty tomb and help us to be people who bring restoration and new life where there was formerly death and despair. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. In our response this morning, I invite you to stand. We will sing together of our only hope in life and in death and in life again, Christ. Thank you.
Because Christ is our hope in life and in death, because Christ has entered into his tomb and enters into our tombs, we can pray to him. And so we will join together in the words that are on the screen for our prayer this morning, and we have a common refrain that you will say, which is, We are an Easter people. Crushed it. Nice work. Wonderful. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you are an impossibility specialist. The long winter's grip pried off us finger by finger, the whole earth greening under the spring sun. You bring new life where there is lifelessness. You resurrect hope when we are mired in darkness. We We are are Easter people. Bring Easter hope to all among us who are grieving. Your solace that we will see our loved ones again. Your comfort that you will be with us in the hour of our death. We We are are an Easter people. Bring Easter hope to all among us who are despairing. Give us light and meaning in our times of suffering and your energy when life is at its lowest ebb. We We are are an Easter Easter people. people. Bring Easter hope to all among us who are ill in mind or body. A healing touch to calm our fears. Your soothing presence to carry us when we falter. We We are are an Easter people. Bring Easter hope to all among us who are locked away in jails, as well as those among us chained by addictions, and free us from every prison of prejudice. We We are are an Easter people. Bring Easter hope to our neighborhood and to our city. The stranger welcomed, the hungry fed, the lost found, your kingdom coming here in West Michigan. We We are are an Easter people. Thank you for showing us who we are through Jesus Christ, our Savior, and for transforming us daily through your creative spirit. We are an Easter people, and Alleluia is our song. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together the doxology. Praise God from whom all One final blessing for us this morning. Brothers and sisters, friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.